For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have full measure of joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, for they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids are invited to Kids Church today with Emily. You may be seated.
I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world you may have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world, is what Jesus instructs his disciples in at the end of chapter 16. Now Emily did the long reading from John 17 for us today, and I always think it's important to remember that it, it seems heavy when you listen to that all. I think it seems heavy, at least to me, about what we're called to be in the world. But it comes as Christ is praying for us, which I think is an important thing to keep in mind, is that Christ prays for us as his disciples. These aren't easy things. They're not meant to be. Uh, if, if it was just like, just do this, then it wouldn't be that, that Christ in him, himself is praying for us as we go about this. It's been a little hard for me during the sermon series. David has encouraged me in some ways to, to have those application points at the end. But I always am, am struck by um, God's work is done for us. Uh, in the passage that Jonathan read from Ephesians, which names that sort of classic discussion we've been talking about, about this battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, that it is Christ who restores us. That God does these things. And, and Scripture isn't short on things that we are supposed to do, but if we get the order wrong, then we begin to think it's our task of saving ourselves. Rather than if we keep the order right, that it is God who saves us, and through his grace, he has given us means by which we might be healed. Then we might have better hope than that. And it gives us a different spot for our failures. It's, it's um, oftentimes, I think, as if, if you've ever been in a sort of heightened sort of pietistic or sort of holiness church, it's the failures um, then become always your fault, and then you need to try harder. Um, whereas... The failures certainly aren't God's fault, but the trying harder thing just doesn't come down as a burden as much. It becomes, uh, Eugene Peterson, in, in his translation of the Sermon on the Mount, he says that, that as we follow Christ, we, learned, we learn the unforced rhythms of grace. As we follow Christ, we learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And so it is for us to, to not live under these burdens of you need to practice uh, the sign of the cross, you need to read scripture, you need to do the prayer and fasting and confession. Um, but it's the means by which we learn the unforced rhythms of grace in the God that follows us, or in the God that we follow, in the God that rescues us. Now today is... is uh, the world part of this sermon. I want to read um, from this document that comes around 150 AD, and it's an early apology on what the Christians were in the world. Um, because the world's a hard one. Uh, we, uh, when, when I hear like, oh, beware of the dangers of the world, I go to 1950s radio preacher, um, and, and that it's uh, Elvis or something like that. Um, uh, but I think that there's, it's, it's funny, and there's also this point at, like, having come this far, maybe they weren't entirely wrong. Um, I remember, this is just a, a short aside story, as, as my brother was leaving um, alcoholism and drugs and everything else behind and moving into the life of the church, 
Um, I have a twin brother. I don't know if you guys, some of you know that, some of you don't. But uh, anyways, uh, he was leaving that behind, and he was trying to join these churches in the San Francisco area, and they all had these men's groups. And he was like, it would be so good to be with men, to pray and support one another and the struggle and this, that, and the other. And every single men's group in that area, this is a bit of a different culture, it was like cigars and beer and theology, beer and theology, beer, tap, beer, theology, um, bros and beers, this, that, and the other. And what, what was, became the challenge for him, it was like, why, as I'm leaving alcoholism, every place and every church, and these were generational churches, these weren't old Episcopal churches on the corner, but, but all these younger, hipper churches he was going to, everything revolved around this. And for him, it was like, I don't, I don't have a problem with people um, participating in that, but everything has to come with that. Here, meeting after church, we're going to go get some beers at brunch, we're going to go do this. And it was hard for him to find this place in which, like, why is that such a thing? Why is that so overthrown today? And so I think, you know, as we think about that 1950s radio preacher um, condemning the ills of the world, um, you know, we've moved so far. John John Mark, who wrote the book that's, that's helping guide this sermon series. Um, he talks about at his church, Hip Church in Portland, um, that it, it went from like, you know, can we see rated R movies to on his way into church, people were discussing the recent Game of Thrones episode. Um, I haven't seen that, but I know a little bit about Game of Thrones, and that's pretty, yeah. Kevin, you've seen it? You can ask Kevin if you want to know how dark this stuff is. Um, uh, not to, that's not to say, I mean, we all have that. The line's moved so far. Um, anyways, so th- this is an early church. Um, it's on the back of the bulletin, one quote from it. Attempt to sort of say, what is the Christian in the world? For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language, nor the customs they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves as advocate of any merely human doctrines. But at having Greek as well as barbarian sittings, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and allowing the customs of their native language in respect of clothing, food, and the rest of ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in things with others, and yet endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers." They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all humanity and are persecuted by our all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet they abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonored are glorified. 
They are evil. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled. They are reviled and bless. They are insulted and they repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are published as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as is quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to sign any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. The soul is dispersed throughout all the members of the body, and the Christians are scattered throughout the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, yet is not of the body, and Christians dwell in the world, yet are not of the world. The invisible soul is guarded by the visible body, and Christians are known indeed to be in the world, but their godliness remains invisible. The flesh hates the soul and wars against it, through itself no suffer, suffering, no injury, because it is prevented from enjoying presence. The world also hates Christians, though now in no wise injury because they abjure pleasures. The soul loves the flesh that hates it and also loves the members. Christian, likewise, love those. This early attempt describes this tension well, that Christians here, as Jesus says, are remaining in the world while he has left the world. And yet they endure things not the same way that everybody else does. They're not bound up in the identity of what happened in Rome today, and yet they suffer that with those who suffer it. This way in which they go about their lives is distinguished in ways in which they don't share a common bed. They don't leave their infants out on the side of the road to death. And, and actually at this time, they're starting to collect those infants from those places as they're left to exposure to die. Um, that Christians have this way of sort of being in the world that is not entirely of the world. And yet their distinguishment, which comes at the beginning of that passage, is not in clothing or dress or language, which I think is important for us to remember, because perhaps the easiest way to be distinguished in the world is to have a different clothing or dress or language. And, and oddly enough, most of the world religions, diet, clothing, language, prescribed times of prayer, these are the things that set them apart. And yet Christianity, and I think it's incredible, um, it has to be God-given in some ways, has found a way to survive without having any of those token disruptors along the way. No different language, no different dress, no different way of being in this way. It's that they inhabit in such a way, and yet what this person sees is that difference within them, and it's a difference that comes to the character of the Christian. To go back to John 17, it's a miracle he prays for us, because I... I've known a lot of Christians in my life, um, and in Mass, it doesn't seem like that's the obvious message I would always take away. Maybe we look better on the outside than the inside. I think that's true of, of, of lots of things, at least uh, it appears to be. Um, but that's, that's the challenge for today as we define, you know, we did, uh, I'll go through it, but like we... We did the devil, which is, you know, an obvious enemy who's been with us from the beginning. We did the flesh, and I think that um, many of us resonated with that Chesterton answer, what's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am G.K. Chesterton. Dear sirs, I am Matthew Shedden. Um, that, that we notice that within ourselves, there's this way in which we can't fulfill the ways we'd want to be in the world. Uh, this can take the guise of addiction. This can take the guise of, of it's like, um, 
Today, I'm not going to yell at my kids. It's 9.15 a.m., not p.m. Um, that it, if, if it were easy to do these things, we wouldn't have these sort of enemies of our soul. But today we have the world, which is sort of uh, perhaps the soul made large in its dysfunction as well. It's, it's the expansion of the soul's dysfunction around the whole of the thing. Um, and so that's, that's what we have with us today. This, um, this is how John Mark sort of, I, I, don't, I don't see it as linearly as he does, that we have these deceptive ideas that lead to disordered desires that then build a saint, uh, sinful society, because I think they, they overlap more and they go back and forth more. At least like if this is all you had, and, and perhaps you could argue maybe he's a little bit better in the book, but you know, you'd say, oh, that my deceptive idea came from the devil all the time that led to disordered desire in the flesh and then sinful society. I think that why I'm bad is a bit of a mix of all three, <laughs> always combining and pulling in different ways. Um, and so if I were to say, you know, it all comes from the deceptive of ideas of the devil, uh, if you go all the way back to Genesis, I guess true, but I live now. And so, um, uh, 16-year-old me can do stuff just because it's cool. Um, uh, 16, or older than that now, me can do stuff of the flesh just because it's what I want to do. Uh, what was a phrase last week? The heart wants what the heart wants. Um, that you can live in these ways. But you see the way in which these things sort of move and progress, um, and so today we have this sort of way in which this dysfunction is made large. Um, these are some sort of uh, quotes I've taken from, from a resource, not this one, but, but just summarizing. By devil, we identify a real personal enemy, a fallen angel, father of lies, who with his fellow Jesus, demons of hell labors in resentless malice to twist us away from salvation. This is um, a short description of the devil and the demons that come with it, but it's worth remembering that like, Jesus had a real personal enemy. So Christians believe in the devil because Jesus had that real personal enemy. When we talked about fighting the devil, we talked about reading scripture, that Jesus in his encounters with that enemy used scripture to combat that enemy that that was one of the mechanisms. Jesus used, in all three temptations, uses scripture in response to all three temptations. Satan uses scripture in one temptation, which is why we also pray to grow in wisdom, not just memory of scripture. Um, but this image of this woman being illuminated, uh, compared to technology of the phone, that we're illuminated by so many other things, um, but it's for the Christian to be illuminated by the word. Um, we haven't sung thy word as a lamp unto my feet, which is... Okay, we haven't read Psalm 119 in a long time, but we haven't read that classic 90s, sung that classic 90s song, Thy Word is a Lamp Unto My Feet. Um, but that's our relationship to this word, is that it is a lamp unto us, and it's a guide for us. And I didn't say this, but, but it's perhaps good for us to commit it to memory, um, not just to read it. I think that's one of the struggles with the Bible in a year plans, is it becomes, how do I get through this? You know, I've got four days to catch up on or five days to catch up on. And, and committing it to memory, reflecting upon it, uh, having it be a seed that grows in us uh, gets skipped when we do that. We, we tend to do uh, scripture. It's, 
Robert Faircapen has this line about working out, and I think alcohol. He says, you know, Americans, they either like obsessively do it or don't do it at all. Um, sometimes I think Christians' relationship to Scripture is we either obsessively do it or we don't do it at all. Um, and so, you know, taking the time to read it and to have it grow in you and, and to memorize portions of it. I've, I've challenged uh, members of my family to commit to a book in a year or to commit to the Gospels for a year or to commit to, to have something be something you know very well. To know all 66 books very well is very difficult. Um, to know the book of Romans so well that it's near to you as you live your life is much more manageable. So I <coughs> advise those practices. The next one is the sign of the cross in which we make a press breastplate for us to protect us in the world. And we do, the, the classic way that this is done is in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit at the end of church. It's something I've brought into for a while now after I read that, that book um, by Kreider, the patient Furman of the early church where that quote came from. As I go into other places, particularly when I go into places where I'm a bit worried, um, one of the places I do it on my walk every night is when I pass uh, the birthing wing of the hospital. I say a prayer for, for, for mothers and infants in there just because there seems like there's so much uh, always going on at that wing of the hospital. I've been trying to expand it. Up above the birthing wing is the critical care. I've been trying to also expand it to that as I walk by. Um, but just to sort of, you know, I, because I live down here, I walk around the hospital a lot. So uh, to offer that up, to sort of mark that place, to invite God into that place. And so, you know, at the end of the service, when I give the blessing, that's one time to do it. But, it, but it's not meant for just one spot. It's meant to be brought into your life. The quote even mentioned um, from the early church father about how they learned to imitate it in quiet and still ways so as not to draw attention to themselves in the world. Um, this is uh, the flesh next I have it out of order by flesh we understand the obvious tendency uh, to gluttony and sexual immorality but also the corrupt intentions inclinations, disordered passions which blind us, make us stupid and lay us open to greater sins um this is the flesh for us in the ways in which it can sort of pull us apart and distort us in these ways. Um, for the flesh, I talked about on how we're curved inside ourselves. We have a scoliosis of the soul um, that makes us curved. And what, what God does in, in Augustine's sort of classic phrase is he turns us inside out so that we can turn towards the world and love it. So when we're collapsed upon ourselves, it's the love of self that governs all things and what I want and my desires. What he does is he turns us inside out, and then we're able to look outside into the world. Um, this is uh, the practice for this was confession and fasting, um, trying to invite confession into our lives in a way that is positive. Um, not only positive. There are certainly times where where confession is heavy upon us. Psalm fifty one is that heavy sort of confession. But confession to be able to go and speak with God and to and to receive forgiveness, but also not just to confess sins, but to confess um, the way in which God sort of uh, radiates in in the world. We we sort of bring that into our lives and stuff. Um, Confession is this place in which we can sort of acknowledge the way in which our sins um, are destructive upon the place that we are. Um, and we have pretty standard prayer of confession. It changes slightly in tone. 
um, each month, but it's an easy one to memorize. Um, um, but it, it asks for forgiveness for the things that we've done and the things that we've left undone, things that we're not aware of, and that, that it's God who sort of hears us in that. Fasting, I mentioned, is this sort of abstention from things, but as well as fasting um, that's often lost in the modern world. But, but to pull back from things is a way of sort of um, taming the flesh, of sort of, of putting it in its spot. Um, it's the way in which we instruct it. Um, the next is the world. The, the, the thing that was out of order was the C.S. Lewis quote. I figured we'll do each sermon with the C.S. Lewis quote from the Screwtape Letters, because why not? Um, but uh, uh, this one is, is from the Screwtape Letters, but this one is about the world. The first thing is to delay as long as possible the moment at which he realizes this new pleasure as temptation. Since the enemy's servants have been preaching about the world as one of the great standard temptations for 2,000 years, this might seem difficult to do. But fortunately, they have said very little about it for the last few decades. In modern Christian writings, though I see much and indeed more than I would like about mammon, I see few of the old warnings about worldly vanities the choice of friends, and the value of time. All that your patient would probably classify as puritanism. And may I remark in passing that the value we have given to that word is one of the really solid triumphs of the past last hundred years. By it, we rescue annually thousands of humans from temperance, chastity, and sobriety of life. So this is one demon writing to another demon. I like that phrase at the end. Um, if you can regard it as puritanism, then you can just regard it. It's, it's one of the great triumphs of, of the satanic world that, oh, that sounds like puritanism or pietism or holiness. We go, oh, well, that's not us. And by that, they have been able to uh, rescue thousands to their side, which in the screw tape letters is the bad side, um, uh, by making us revulsion towards that. Um, uh, and that, I think, is uh, at least a hard truth for me, is that when people say, you know, we're going we're gonna to talk about holiness today or this, that, and the other, I, I get like, oh, this seems like that's controlling. And that's maybe somewhat of a reasonable reaction to some of what the modern church has done, but if that's your only reaction all the time, perhaps there's a bit going on here. But I do like that, that they say, you know, uh, reclaiming this, this world thing, which is, takes up the bulk of the Gospel of John. If you just do like a Bible gateway word search, which is what lazy pastors do, not me, but I will tell you, there's 56 references to the world in John, I heard from a friend, um, and, uh, and, and the rest of the New Testament, it's much less than that. Um, uh, now, obviously, the problem when you do uh, that, or when my friends do that, um, is you end up with uh, not all those references are to the world and to the way in which we mean it. But just to say, as Emily read for us, I mean, the world was overlaid in that. The world is overlaid in 16, as we see this. And this is what happens immediately after Emily stopped reading is Jesus is arrested. Um, and so that's the next thing that precedes that. So his last prayer and teachings are about the world in this way. By world, and this is from the same definition, we intend indifference and opposition. We intend, indi- we intend indifference and opposition to God's design, embracing empty, passing values. That um, stings. It seems like, oh, that's not so bad, and then it stings when you think about it. Um, uh, like, oh, that the world is like given less um, there, but that. 
that, that we are in opposition to God's design, embracing empty, passing values. It starts to sting around there. This list from um, Richard Beck, I just think, is just a, an amazing way in which the world offers us ways to sort of medicate ourselves away with, with empty, passing values. Um, uh, sugar, fat, salt, fast food, snacks, sugary drinks, video games, smartphone apps, PlayStation, Xbox, uh, sporting, n- Nintendo, if you're thinking, ha ah, he didn't say Nintendo. Um, sporting events, attending, watching, fantasy leagues, gambling. This is like, has anybody noticed the massive uptick in, I know it's legal now, but like every ad seems to be an ad for gambling on sports on TV now, at least if you watch sports, going back one up the level. Um, Caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, marijuana, legal drugs, opioids, meth, cocaine, TV and streaming services. Um, it's amazing. It's, remember when we, we cut the cable so that we could save money and now we pay for 15 streaming services more than we ever paid for cable? All because of that one channel you didn't want, which this that's, has nothing to do with the sermon. Anyways, um, movies, social media, uh, widescreen TVs, which are everywhere nowadays, um, headphones, uh, and shopping online and in person, uh, pretty much online nowadays, uh, thanks to the pandemic. But these are the ways in which we can sort of um, be drawn further and further into the world. Now, this is one of the things, I, th- I think it came from Dallas Willard originally, but like spiritual formation is not an option. You are going to be spiritually formed. What are you going to be spiritually formed by? is the question. Like the idea of saying like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really doing spiritual formation right now. It's like something is filling that void and filling, uh, uh, shaping you. Um, and so often in, in this world, and world works in two senses here, it tends to be the world. What I can put on and zone out to, what I can just watch endlessly, what I can doom scroll. Um, all these things end up to be what we default to and what we're going to shape ourselves with. And so those are the temptations of the world. Um, to talk about the world just for one minute. Okay, back TV died. Good to know. Um, the uh, front one's still on. The one way to think about the world is the pre-Christian world the Christian world and the post-Christian world. And if you're interested in hearing more about this, the podcast, uh, The Leadership Table, just listened to this cultural moment, particularly season one, gives a longer explanation of these things. But I think it's very important. It uses a, a Jewish sociologist's way of understanding sort of cultures. He has, you could read first culture, second culture, third culture. I think he actually used first world, second world, and third world, but this was in the 70s. Third world got co-opted into a different term than what he meant, so we'll use cultures instead. But, but the pre-Christian culture was this way in which uh, this epistle lives in, um, in, in this way in which Christians were sort of invited to sort of share the good news that they had within them, the values that they had distinguished them, their values of, of rescuing the children, their values of rejoicing in all things together, their values of charity and goodness. Charity at the time of the early church was primarily limited to kin, the idea of having charities that served people who you weren't related to. 
And more importantly, people you weren't ethnically connected to was very shocking. So the Christian distinguished themselves in these ways. And so we were mission in that world in this way in which we were different. And we had something to say that was distinct. The Christian in this world also was noticed by how they lived, I think, in certain ways, as we saw in that that epistle that we read there. Um, So the mission was clear. In the Christianized world, or Christian world, which is never was a Christian world, but a, a Christianized culture or such, um, and we could pick um, uh, the late 50s for this type of thing, the idea was is sort of everybody was sort of a Christian, and so the distinct thing, uh, distinctness lost its value. Um, so much so that like in at, coming out of that, we came up with you know, Christians who took their faith seriously were called born again, um, which is all of us, according to John. Like, there is no Christian who isn't born again. And so we had these ways in which only really sort of serious fanatics in some ways could be named to take their, their faith more seriously. But we lived in this own tension. In this way, um, Billy Graham, I've used this example for, could get up and give uh, one of his altar calls talking about sin, and people understood what he meant. And what he was really calling them back to was revival in a lot of ways, not as much new conversion, although I'm sure there was plenty of that. But the world was nurtured in such a way that those language things worked. One of the ways I, I think about this is along the lines of race. When, when there were racial riots in Baltimore in the 1960s, I think, Eugene Peterson translated the book of Galatians so that his congregation could begin to learn about it. Um, to, to think how Christians would respond. In the 1990s, when I was growing up, we just used um, colorblind sort of platitudes and, and sort of legalism, don't be a racist, which is good legalism, but like we didn't have a Christian way of doing it. But my, I was talking to pastors this week. Now the pastors think their job is to translate not the book of Galatians, but um, how to be an anti-racist for their congregations. And so we no longer trust what we share in common. We we translate other things to think about this. Um, that's, that's a bit of the tension. So then we move into the post-Christian world. The post-Christian world um, uh, is one in which we see very often. Now, Christianity still is doing relatively well in America. We have not had an, an atheist president. Um, that's one of the things. I don't know why that's a marker for me, maybe because I'm a U.S. history major, but like, <laughs> Um, you know, like, you're still a Christian to be elected president. But the language, even like what we're talking about in race there, or how we reason together all that, all that's gone. And one of the things they say in the podcast is, in the post-Christian world, there's a lot of a kingdom without the king. So we have a lot of the values of the church, um, multi-ethnic, care for the poor, all this, pulled away from the fullness of who Christ is. So we have a lot of these things divorced from their source. I've argued in different sermons, we won't do it today, that when they're pulled from their source, they become different values, um, but that's a different point. But, but we have this post-Christian world where Christianity is still doing well, and its values in certain ways seem to be out in the world, in other ways not, um, but, but that were sort of um, cast into this world. Part of the problem that I have with, as we think about this as a church, is so much of what the church thinks to do as mission is to go back to what worked in the Christian world. Part of my argument here has always been, and for instance, why the patient ferment of the early church and that sign of the cross things, I think it's wise to go back to what they did in the pre-Christian world. 
because what we share in common isn't as associative anymore. But one of the things the podcast brings up, which I think is one of the most important things as we think about the world and our relationship to it today, is the pre-Christian world went in mission as a minority. No real threat of colonizing the culture. The Christian world was a colonizing culture. Missionaries were largely aware of this. If Matt Ringer were here, he'd be able to confess to it. When we sent missionaries, particularly in the later years, we were aware that we could bring our culture, our Christian culture, suits and Charles Wesley hymns, and oppose that upon indigenous churches so that they would look more like Western churches than they would look like um, authentic churches to their culture. Um, now we live in the post-Christian world, and what they... I think this is one of the most important insights, as I said, is that when we go out in mission, it colonizes us. When we go to the places, and so let's, let's go back to my brother for a moment. When we go to the pub to say, hey, I'm going to be salt and light at the pub, it's the pub that informs and colonizes us, not the other way around. Now, if you think about if you've known any college students in the past couple of years, 20 years or so, um, or even your own sort of self, and this is what became, as I listened to that, I was like, oh no. Because <laughs> what I found was that my way of thinking about so many issues was that I had gone out to try and learn and to be salt and light and to be in the world. And what I found is that I didn't convert anyone but they so richly converted me to their values. I was continually being formed by the world under the guise of thinking in mission. And so when we think about um, formation and going out to be witnesses in the world today, I think it's important to remember that we often today are getting formed by that more than we are doing the formation. Um, and so what becomes of the church in this world? Uh, how is the church to live in this world? Um, we'll do one more and then quickly dive into John. This is one of the, I think, most controversial things that I try to say at church is the first task of the church is not to make the world more just, but to make the world more the world, which comes from Stanley Howarth. The world cannot know it is in the world unless there exists a people who are not the world. Um, the first task of the church is not to make the world more just, but to make the world more the world. Um, and what he means by that is to be formed in and of itself, to have its own distinctive character and witness to be in that way. Um, and so we get things like this from John's gospel. If the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Going back to that three cultures thing and that is that the world has this way in which it is against us in Jesus' words. That the world is not our native place in this way as we've been pulled out of it by Christ. So we have this relationship into the world in which it is expected to hate us. And the prayer that Emily Judd read, it, it has this way of sort of almost saying um, that if it's not hating you, you might be doing it wrong, which is sort of Jesus' way of looking at it, because it hated him. Who are you to think you could do better? 
The one who lived perfectly and sinlessly as Jesus Christ lived in the world and was received as haste. Who are we to think we should do better? Now, in John's gospel, the world's mentioned a lot, and it's one of the most famous references is that for God so loved the world. And so as we talk about the world, through the lens of John's gospel, it's to remember also that for God so loved the world. God's relationship to this world isn't hate, even though it hates the followers of his son, and it hates us in some ways by proxy of that, that God so loved the world. Um, And so remembering in John's gospel also that there are no exorcisms really. Biblical scholars say that because there are no exorcisms, John's gospel is about the exorcism of the world, that he is exorcising the demons from the whole world is how he does, that the world is so stained that in John's gospel, Jesus' mission isn't to do one exorcism, but to do an exorcism of creation. We'll end uh, with practices after this, but this is the last insight from John's gospel for today, which comes from chapter 15, and he's speaking about the spirit when it says person. When that person arrives, he will show how wrong the world is about what is wrong, sin, about what is right, righteousness, and about who won judgment. About what was wrong, namely that they do not believe in me. About what is right, namely that I am going to the Father and you no longer see me. And about uh, what was wrong, namely that the rule of the world has been soundly condemned. This is from uh, Frederick Dale Bruner's translation of this passage. But the idea is, is that the world is wrong about three big things. The first, sin. Um, my home church, when the Peace USA was sort of sliding into its own sort of journey towards um, liberalism, the pastor who we had, he said, it wasn't so much that the notions of conduct were changing, but that what was changing was that what was once bad is now called good. That's what threw him off. It wasn't that we should be more gracious or that we should invite people in or that the church should be more of a hospital for sinners than a school for saints. He said that what was really throwing him off was that more and more things that we knew were sin were now being proclaimed as good. That's what really got him. So wrong about sin, wrong about righteousness, about how we live into what God has done for us. Um, that he is one who has ascended to the Father and sits at the right hand. And the final one, a wrong, um, uh, namely that the ruler of this world, business as usual, stands condemned. These are the three things that in John's gospel he sees the world as wrong about. So the practices for today, not that, The first one, silence and solitude. Going back to that, formation is not a choice. To be able to pull away in actual periods of silence and to then take an inventory of what's forming you. And I mean like an honest inventory. Like, I spend X hours a day on this person's feed that is shaping me. I spend so much time listening to this podcast, this news source, this whatever. And how much is that more colonizing or instructing my mind more than the spirit which the person which reveals has been wrong by those things is doing itself and you may find during that 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 the formation isn't all wrong but the way that we can check in on that 
is by turning it off, by taking time for silence and solitude. And the more benign sources, like sports, you know, all the time it's not really instructing me. And it's like through the use of time, it is instructing you. Um, If you spend that much time on it, by virtue, then it becomes instruction for you. Um, So silence and solitude as Jesus pulled away himself. And the last one, which we'll focus on next week, um, is go to church, which is today is literally preaching to the choir um, because you guys are here. Um, But this is, I think, a solution for all three of these as we went through it, to be reminded of the identity, for instance, in the battle with the flesh. Uh, Jesus, the Satan comes to Jesus and says, if you are the son of God, Jesus, because he's God, can go alone to that place and hear that and stand firm. But as we go into the world and they say, if you are really adopted by God, if you are really in Christ, at least alone, I can't stand much up for that. But if I join a community of people that co-reminds each other that we are adopted into God and to Christ, that we have a Father and a Spirit who lives with us, one that empowers us to go forth into the world, but we have a community in which we are reminded of that good news together, that's the counterformation that we have that's best to the world. Not just thinking, let's stand firm and resist it, as the 1950s preacher perhaps reminded, but to say, let's be formed in the other way. So silence and solitude, exempting yourself from the formation to some degree. Participating in church, inviting alternative formation into your life. Hearing from other believers, connecting in that way. So let us pray together with the prayer that we've closed each week with. Let us receive the sign of the cross as a token of our new life in Christ in which you shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified, to fight bravely under his banner against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to continue as his faithful soldier and servant to the end of your day.